And hello there, Peter Mansbridge here. You are just moments away from the latest episode of The Bridge. What are we missing? You know, with all the attention on Ukraine and Russia in this past year, there are a lot of other things going on in the world that we've kind of passed over. Today, we make up for that. And hello there from Stratford, Ontario. Peter Mansbridge here with The Bridge. Hope you had a great weekend. It's been off and on snowing in the last little while here in southern Ontario, but there's been blue sky, and man, have we been waiting for that. In a couple of weeks, I don't remember a stretch this long without sunshine. But we made up for it on the weekend, and it was uh, it was nice to kind of bask in the sunshine. sitting in the backyard in the snow, bundled up, but looking up at the sun. It was nice. Uh, There was one other thing I did on this weekend, and I did it in many ways because you, many of you had implored me to do it. Last week I talked about, we had kind of one of those end bits on on how uh, people are considering different ways of prolonging life. And it reminded me of a movie I used to watch when I was a a kid, you know, in my early teens, that I've never forgotten, except the name of it. (laughs) It was about Shangri-La, that place hidden in the mountains of the Himalayas, where you were said to be forever young. You never grow old unless you leave. Well, the movie reminded by you, was called Lost Horizon. And uh, so at the suggestion of many of you wrote in last week, I looked it up on the weekend, and I watched it. 1937, Frank Capra, starring Ronald Coleman and Jane Wyman. And you know what? It was pretty good. It brought back memories of my childhood. From the opening scene, which is of uh, what was then a brand new DC-3, the Dakota, a plane that's still flying. But in that day, it was one of the biggest aircraft in the world. And the opening shots of it flying over the Himalayas, supposedly gleaming, brand new, beautiful aircraft outside and inside. Through the storyline, which is pretty simple, really, it's this group stumbles into a, to this little village, which is Shangri-La. Fountain of youth. Live forever, unless you leave. So that's the plot line. And for two hours, on it goes. Now, the interesting thing about this movie, which is, you know, almost a century old soon, 85 years old, is that seven minutes of a two-hour movie are missing. The visuals, not the audio, the soundtrack is all there. But somehow, over time, it got lost, these seven minutes. And so those who 
put it back together again for, uh, I guess it's on Amazon right now. Um, they've, they've been, <laughs> they've found some unique ways of doing that. So you don't miss any of the story in terms of the soundtrack, but the video has seven minutes missing. So they had to replace it without disturbing the integrity really of the, of the film. But it was fun to watch, and it did bring back all those memories of watching it as a as a kid. So it was kind of fun, you know. In our in our world today of watching the incredibly well produced, all kinds of action in them, you know, like Tom Cruise's latest Top Gun movie, which I thoroughly enjoyed. Um. But it's a long way from Lost Horizon in terms of the techniques. But that didn't bother me a bit. And we should never forget that. There's a treasure of films, old films, out there, and they're all available now because of incredible technology. And uh, they're worth watching. They're worth watching. You know, you got a couple of hours on a weekend where you just want to sit back and watch the way it used to be done when acting was as important as special effects well there you see it so that was fun anyway enough on Lost Horizon (laughs) but managed to talk about this for three different shows in the last week enough moving on Um, and we're going to move on to this issue that, you know, for the past year, or at least since last February, we have been focused on Ukraine and its war with Russia. And for good reason. Um, depending on the, which way you want to look at this, uh, the future of global affairs is at stake in terms of this conflict. And so... Our attention has been on that, and every week we've spent, as we will again tomorrow, on Tuesdays, we've spent time with Brian Stewart, analyzing what's going on in Ukraine, what to watch for, what we might have um, noticed in the days around Brian's appearance. And as a result, a lot of other things in the world we've kind of glossed over or moved on from. And not paying attention to. And that's not necessarily a good thing. It's a big world out there. A lot of things impact us. So today is catch-up day. And, you know, I'll agree it's kind of a snapshot and it doesn't include everything. But the idea was to uh, to go to somebody who uh, who I respect and say, okay, Give us the kind of foreign policy one-on-one course in the following countries and zip through it on a global basis. So that's what we're going to do today. And uh, you won't be surprised to know that I've asked my friend, uh, at times my mentor, uh, certainly on foreign policy issues, and that's uh, Janice Stein from the University of Toronto. Um, She is one of the country's uh, leading political scientists, She's an international relations expert. She's um, a specialist in in Middle East area studies, but her specialties go beyond just the Middle East. Um, She's a specialist in negotiation theory, 
foreign policy decision-making, international conflict management, all of these things, uh, which are called upon by countries around the world, including obviously Canada. Uh, uh, Janice uh, is well-known in the uh, international circle of foreign policy experts. Her background is McGill University and Yale University. She's the founding director of the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy at the University of Toronto, uh, where she uh, is a professor and where, you know, um, let me just state up front that I'm a, a, a distinguished fellow, as they call it, at the uh, Monk School and and am honored to be so with occasional um, moments at the uh, at the Monk School um, helping with various things. So that's the background on Janice Stein. And the topic for today is is basically that. What are we missing? And we're going to get to this discussion. <laughs> you know how this goes. We'll get to this discussion right after this. Welcome back. Peter Mansbridge here in Stratford, Ontario. Uh, Today's edition of the uh, Bridge is loosely titled, What Are We Missing? And our guest is Dr. Janice Stein from the Monk School, the University of Toronto. So you've heard the introduction. Let's get to the, uh, let's get to the conversation. Here she is, Janice Stein. All right, Janice, let's, uh, let's start where we kind of all spent the first 20 years of this century, which was, you know, pocketed around Afghanistan and Iraq, a little bit else in the Middle East. But let, let's start with Afghanistan. What should we know about what's happening in Afghanistan now, a year after, more than a year now, since the Taliban retook control? The Taliban have really consolidated control. Peter, all the rights are rolled back. Just astonishing. Uh, You look at Afghanistan today and it is almost as if we were never there. Uh, Women locked out of universities, girls locked out of high schools, you know, Taliban on the streets, religious police. Uh, It is as if this country has, and the Taliban in particular, have turned the clock back. Is there opposition? Sure, there is. Are they fighting overwhelming odds? Yes, they are. Uh, you know, it's so depressing when you consider the, the the blood, some of it ours, that was spilled in Afghanistan in the you know in the twenty uh, sort of twenty oh three onward. Um, you know, what do you say to those to those people who believed it was so important and you know fought for it? And now it's not even discussed, and it's gone back. You know, fallen off the radar, as you said, Peter, as if it never were. And what do you say, question that bothers me, what do you say to the parents of the soldiers who lost their lives in Afghanistan? I say we have to be much more careful before we deploy troops abroad. We got very optimistic estimates from our own military about the probability of success. Nobody foresaw. We were under terrific U.S. pressure. We need to be much more careful. And are we? Yeah, we are. There's a lot of U.S. pressure right now on Canada to send troops to Haiti. You may have noticed the prime minister is not signing up. 
Well, one, another place where we never signed up under the Christian uh, government was Iraq. Um, we don't hear about Iraq anymore, uh, hardly ever. You hear more about Afghanistan, as little as it is, than you hear about Iraq. What's new in Iraq? Well, Iraq also fractured government. You know, I think often Peter of Colin Powell's comment, yeah, break it, you own it. Mm-hmm. Well, in some ways we broke it, but what we've all managed to do is not own it. So really fractured, the parliament is paralyzed. Uh, when you look at Iraq today, what do you see? Iran as the major outside power with just huge influence. And again, you know, I look back and I say to myself, was this, was this the purpose? Did anybody understand that if they broke uh, the countervailing power in Iraq, this would leave the door wide open for Iran, frankly, to control the politics of Iraq? Because that's what we see today. You know, when you... um when you think of Afghanistan, Iraq, Iran, um, the Americans convinced much of the world that all that was wrong that was happening in our parts of the world, everything bad that happened, was coming out of those three places. Now we do. We rarely talk about them anymore. Iran, you know, we cer- we certainly talk about Iran, and, and you know, we're watching with interest what's going on in Iran in terms of the kind of mini revolution that's going on. Um, but were we oversold about the impact that area of the world can have on us? It's a really important question, Peter, because what was coming out of the Middle East was a radical Islamist ideology, which was leading to really a wave of terror attacks against civilian populations in the West. And they're really awful for the domestic population and they destabilize governments who appear weak. But that kind of attack is never really a strategic threat. It's it's it draws government's attention away from the big strategic picture. You focus on preventing attacks. And there's no question that governments in Europe and in, in the United States prevented many but it was never a strategic threat. Um, but that was really hard to say during all those years. Look where the conversation is now. It's back in a conversation about great power competition. Um, and you can make an argument about those, right? Is that a strategic threat? But to to almost elevate um, you know, radical Islam to that point and give it that much airtime um, and and strength seems to me to have been a, a, a bad mistake. Well, we certainly did give it that much airtime. We um, did. Let's move uh, a little further uh, west. You know, just before we go west, yeah. let me just add one other one. When you think back over these 20 years, Peter, it's really interesting uh, our world began to change uh, in 9-11 when the United, that was the beginning of the United States overreach, uh, extending itself all around the world, putting pressure on others to join. Uh, it was the beginning of a series of mistakes, uh, which I think probably the the energy behind that is now finally petered out. Uh, you know, I, I understand why you're, 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 
putting the pressure on the Americans in terms of all this. But in those days immediately after 9-11, it's not like people were resisting. They were all in. You know, we couldn't get in fast enough to help them. That's right. And not only that, we had Canadians killed, as you know what? Well, yeah. no, Peter, you were there. Um, so it, it, it certainly was all of us. But what we didn't think through was, what was the end game here, right? How, what were we going to do? Were we going to stay in Afghanistan for 50 years? <laughs> How is this ever going to end? It's so easy to start. But if you don't have people in government and and we don't have often saying, well, how, what's the end game here? How, what's the exit strategy? You know, when I say that, Peter, today in Ottawa, people say to me, well, in World War II, nobody asked what the exit strategy was. And there's truth to that. I mean, there were some compelling, great causes for which you don't ask that. But if you never ask it, which is where we were um, in, in two, at the beginning of the, of the 21st century, you make mistakes. Of course, World War II, we won. Afghanistan, you know. We lost. Is, we, we lost. lost. We lost. It's we the lost. only war we've ever lost, Canada. Yeah, right? yeah, that's and right. We you know, lost. People never talk about it that way, but we yeah. lost. Or, we lost. We left, uh, you know, we cut and run, in effect, and we all know what happened after. Yeah. Um, okay, let's move a little, um, a, a little west from that particular region, but not that far. I mean, all my adult life, uh, I've always been focused on uh, the Middle East that we used to describe the Middle East as, you know, Israel and Jordan and uh, Lebanon, Syria, etc. Um, and Israel being at the forefront. That was the place that we watched uh, most closely in terms of what was happening. Well, it's disappeared too, or had disappeared. It seemed to have disappeared when Netanyahu left. <laughs> And we thought, oh, no, he'll never be back. He's going to, you know, he's going to end up in jail or whatever. He's back. And also back is discussion about, you know, the possibility of another third intifada. The Palestinians are upset. The Israelis are hardcore. And we could be into it again in that area. We sure could, Peter. Um, I actually think this government, uh, which is a government led by Netanyahu, who is facing, you know, his trial yeah. <laughs> for criminal activity is ongoing. Let's just understand. This is prime minister elected uh, who faces criminal prosecution. Uh, but in order to stand up his government, he has pulled in two ultra right parties far to the right of what he has ever said in public before this. And why has he done this deal? He's going to pass legislation through the parliament, which will change, which will make the prime minister immune from criminal prosecution. So this is, first of all, just naked self-interest, frankly, of the worst kind. But far more dangerous than that are these two ultra-right wing parties who make it very clear they have no interest in any two-state solution. They are already engaging in inflammatory activity. And by the way, they want to change the appointment of judges so that the judges can no longer overrule parliament. Well, why would that be um, when you have this prime minister? I think uh, there were something like 100,000 people um, in the main square in Tel Aviv last night protesting. This is now... It has been for a long time, but it is a deeply, deeply polarized country, frankly, on knife's edge, because the stakes are now big enough 
um, for those who can't countenance what this government is doing. Again, the United States is weighing in and saying, be careful, be careful, be careful. Don't push things over the edge. I think this Israel could explode in, internally. And I think Palestinian society could explode. Um, this is a government that is bent on destruction, frankly. Well, that's not a very optimistic look nope. at the, the... And I'm sure I will hear from listeners. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, you will. Oh, yeah. The, the, one, the one guarantee on, uh, on on Middle East politics, that Middle East, yeah. uh, is that you're going to hear. You're going to yep. hear, no matter what yep. you say, no matter what yep. position you take, you're going to hear. Um, okay, let's, uh, let's move completely away from that uh, region and talk for a moment about uh, Taiwan and China. And, wow. and the reason I want to raise it is because... I was one of those who believed that the debacle Putin got himself into um, with Ukraine would probably make Xi think twice about any move on Taiwan. But of late, you seem to hear all kinds of things that he ain't thinking twice. You know, I think you're right. Uh, I think I, I don't I think he's watching this um, and he's seeing something, Peter, that neither he nor Putin expected. Uh, you know, he's seen a president in the United States. <laughs> wow. Step up and unite uh, NATO in a way that it hasn't been really since the 60s or or 70s. It's so almost, you know, the Germans <laughs> quietly are not fully on board. And Macron is Macron, always will be Macron, and France will always be France. But fundamentally, there is a, a unity among the North Atlantic Alliance. Nobody expected that. So he's getting uh, a, a, a look, a free look in advance of what will happen. And China um, is not Russia. China's economy is so much more integrated uh, into the global economy that there would be a, a real cost to him that I don't think Vladimir Putin at the time believed there would be. But let me just take an extra second here to talk about Taiwan, which is so fascinating. Um, the largest manufacturer in the world of those really valuable, tiny, tiny little semiconductors, the chips that's in your, in all the equipment you and I are using right, right now, they are manufactured by the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, 90% of the most advanced. And here was a, a kind of, uh, balloon that went up last week when Morris Chang, 91 years old, who established the semiconductor manufacturing industry in Taiwan, said, hey, hey, folks, let's slow down a little bit here. <laughs> if you ask me not to export those advanced semiconductors to China, um, China will have no reason. Um, it will lose any incentive not to invade Taiwan as long as we're here and as long as we're the sole manufacturer of the chips the Chinese need just as much as you do, we have a silicon shield <laughs> around Taiwan. You buy that? There's a grain of truth because China has been, there's a grain of truth. 
China's been struggling. You know, it's invested hundreds of billions of dollars in building up a domestic semiconductor manufacturing industry. It's a very inefficient allocator of capital because <laughs> it doesn't get any market signals at all. And it hasn't broken through, Peter. It manufactures the bigger ones, but those really high-end ones that it needs to move ahead in AI and quantum computing um, and, and, and power its surveillance state, it has to have those advanced semiconductor chips. And, and they're in a global supply chain, too, which is fascinating to look at. Um, because the Netherlands are the next stop back on that supply chain. And there's a company in the Netherlands that controls about 80% of the advanced uh, lithography that they need. So if there was a blockade of Taiwan, even if, even if Xi Jinping thought, well, let me take the less risky way out here. We'll just blockade and the, we, we force, you know, we saw that um, in the exercises they did uh, this past year. The supply chains wouldn't work. Right. And China would be a huge loser in that. So Ukraine is not Taiwan <laughs> and China is not Russia. So I think you're right. Um, okay. I, listen, I'm glad you, you told us that. Uh, that, that is, those are things I did not know. And I feel ashamed that I did not know, but I know them now. Um, okay, let's move to um, to Africa, a country of whatever, 50, 53 countries, or yep, a continent 53, of 53 countries. Yep. Um, and, and we tend to, and I don't know what bias this is, it could be any number of different ones, but we tend to forget Africa. And yeah. we shouldn't. And there's some interesting stuff going on there right now. Uh, so let's do three quick hits in uh, in Africa, starting with uh, Tunisia. Why is that important right now? Oh, Tunisia is fascinating, uh, Peter. You you recall it set off the Arab Spring exactly, exactly January the fourteenth. So we're talking exactly 10 years ago. Uh, and that was the first revolution. It's a North African state that's Arab. That was the first revolution to set in motion uh, those, you know, hugely optimistic hopes for Democrat, you know, for democracy in the Middle East. Mubarak went down, uh, so did others. Well, where are we in Tunisia? There were huge demonstrations last night on this 10th anniversary in the streets against their president, Kais Saeed. Why? Well, he seized power uh, over a year ago, suspended the Constitution, <laughs> has, in fact, again, an imperial presidency. 8% of voters participated in the recent elections, 8%. Uh, so if we say nothing more about Tunisia, again, looking back over this decade, um, what a disappointment this is uh, in the broader African and Arab world that this is where we are. You know, a big part of this story, Peter, is, of course, these, this huge escalation of food prices. Right. Uh, which hits Africa harder than any other part of the world. And the more marginal you are, the more you spend on food as a proportion of your budget, the poorer you are. So it's just been a terrible, terrible year for Africa. And the people in the streets, um, last night, the demonstrations, it's all about food and the economy 
And no jobs. Exactly what set it off. Exactly what set it off 10 years ago. And the food situation is probably going to get worse because so much of North Africa depends, as, as many parts of the world do, on on grain coming from Ukraine. Right. And it's just, yeah. it's just not getting out in any way like it, it, it used no. to. Um, so, okay, well, I will keep an eye on that. Now, here's a name from uh, the past and a, a past where Canada used to get heavily involved. Uh, in terms of uh, being concerned about what was going on there, and that's Congo. You know, Congo is literally um, uh, one of the the biggest contradiction in Africa, you might say, if you're looking for one state that that exemplifies is incredibly well endowed uh, with rich mineral resources, and yet um, badly divided. Uh, you know, badly divided among the tribes. And a history of, again, autocratic government that are, frankly, kleptocrats. <laughs> uh, the level of corruption uh, is very, very high. And it has been a revolving story, but nothing much changes. Uh, just the governments do. Um, you know, Congo is, is now, by the way, once again... <laughs> Uh, at the heart uh, of a scramble for the riches of Africa, what is it this time? It is rare earth minerals. Again, you need rare earth minerals to manufacture uh, those key computer components that we were just talking about. Uh, China, here's a, here's a here's a connection for you. The Congo um, is really really well endowed but exports all of that to China who manufactures it uh, and process it. So China has a choke point now uh, on part of that supply chain. It's such a globally integrated supply chain. Mining companies are racing to the Congo now uh, to mine for rare earth minerals. And let's talk about Canada for a minute. Sure. <laughs> Why are they going to the Congo? Well, do you know how long it takes to get a permit in Canada <laughs> to open up a mine for critical minerals? We have lithium in Canada. The whole world wants that now in the switch to electric battery to batteries for electric vehicles. Mm-hmm. An optimistic estimate, 15 years for permitting in Canada to get that mine going. 15 years. It'll- who's going who's gonna to wait? Exactly. They're there'll there'll be some other magic mineral that, <laughs> that replaces <laughs> lithium by the time we get the, yeah. the mines open. I mean, listen, some of this delay and some of this permit process is important and, and we can be proud of it. But when it's that kind of a delay, I, I, you know, let bureaucracy me, run let, wild. Yeah, let, let me be honest. We What kind of um, clean energy infrastructure have we managed to build in the last 15 years? In fact, what energy infrastructure at all, Peter, have we managed to build in Canada? An LG, you know, an LNG terminal um, that we're still struggling to expand to meet the demand. Well, you know, the prime minister of Japan, mm-hmm. the president of Korea, the chancellor of Germany, who's coming to Canada and saying, ramp up your supply. There's global demand. So Africa, in a sense, because its governance is so weak, um, is 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 now I think again going to be the epicenter of a story of pulling resources out of the ground in Africa, and then sending them somewhere else to process, so that most of the 
most of the benefit does not go to Africans. All right. Our last stop in Africa is South Africa. Oh, what an interesting country uh, that one is. Is that uh, your alarm or my alarm? Yours. It is. Hold on while I go to... Oh, there, it's turned off. It's yours. Um, anyway, <laughs> what, what <laughs> that an was fun. What about South Africa? Tell me about oh, South Africa. What an interesting country that is. And in many sense... Uh, Peter, if you look at the role that South Africa is playing in the world today, you get a you get a snapshot of all the cross currents in the world. Um, it's gone through its own challenges with government. Cyril Ramaphosa had issues as well with cash <laughs> in his country house, as we say, in his cottage. Um, but he, he he is genuinely regarded as a leader of, of integrity. Um, in an African National Congress, that historic movement that has been struggling, um, but because he has credibility, he, I think, speaks for many African states. And what is the story internationally as opposed to nationally? The story really is that Africa will not align itself with either the United States or Russia. Makes it very clear it has no interest in, in, uh, in being forced to make a choice. Um, South Africa is, a, is trading with Russia. Uh, big uh, cargo ships are coming into South African ports, being re- reloaded. That's one of the ways of, that the Russian economy has survived despite sanctions. Um, Ramaphosa is hosting a meeting of Brazil, India, China, Russia uh, in South Africa this year. And look where all that, look how many uh, bridges that crosses. And, and fundamentally, what South Africa is saying on behalf of Africans to the world, we're nobodies. Uh, we are not yours, United States and NATO. We are not yours, Russia. And oh, by the way, we are not yours, China, either. We need improvement uh, in the terms of trade that come our way. That's a fascinating story, too. Boy, you're enlightening us a lot here. Uh, last stop on our sort of kind of mini uh, world tour, you know, uh, international politics 101 Um we, we come to the, this hemisphere and to yeah. the kind of neglected continent uh, uh, that we've mentioned a couple of times in the last few weeks, which is uh, South America. I mean, neglected in the sense we rarely talk about it. Uh, half a billion people in the, uh, on that continent. Most of them in Brazil, and Brazil is our stop. Uh, we've all seen the pictures. We've seen the comparisons <laughs> with January 6th to what happened there. Um, what do you say about Brazil? Well, Brazil is a powerhouse, as you just said, Peter, uh, of South America. So rich again, um, you know, so well endowed, um, has gone through this period under your Bolsonaro that resembles what the United States uh, went through with Trump. And you have this magical resurrection from jail almost of Lulu um, who, and and both of those are populist presidents. Let's just understand. One is a populist of the right, one's a populist of the left. I was mesmerized when I was watching that the uh, the Central Square last week when all this was happening because I can only say this is performance. This is politics as theater. (laughs) There was nobody in those buildings. 
It was a Sunday. Everybody knows all the buildings are empty. You know, on January the 6th, you could draw the political thread a little bit. The protesters were going in to disrupt a vote to certify a president. The protesters in Brazil were going in um, to what? There was no, obviously, political objective to that demonstration. So you see mobilizational politics uh, as theater. I I hoped that was the last gasp of that, Peter, because it was so clearly a, a performance. What it does show you, by the way, is that the police are less politicized than we thought. <laughs> they actually arrested a thousand people on the spot. The army stayed home. Uh, I think Bolsonaro was disappointed by that. So actually, this by and large is a pretty good news story for Brazil going forward. Uh, Does Lulu have a massive job now? Uh, Because the world will not be beating its path to his door for, for energy the way it did in the past. Uh, and he has a hugely impoverished population. So this is not going to be an easy ride. But by and large, I thought a pretty good story. Janice, uh, I thank you so much for this. Uh, you know, I, I, So I, much fun. Yeah, it, it is so much fun. And uh, you know, clearly, we, when, when one story, of, uh, you know, international story dominates the news so much for such a long time, um, we need to catch up because it's a complicated yeah. world out there. There's a lot of things going on. And surprisingly, a lot of them that can, can impact us over the long term. And so the, the more we know about them, the better. My pleasure. Thanks, Janice. Take care. Dr. Janice Stein from the uh, Monk School at the University of Toronto. Um, and as always, you know, love listening to uh, to Janice and her, you know, easy way of describing some very complicated issues uh, that are out there under this banner of what are we missing? And clearly, as you can just tell in the last half hour, we're, you know, we're missing a fair amount as we focus and rightly so, focus on the uh, Ukraine-Russia story. And by the way, it tomorrow will be the focus, as it always is on Tuesdays, uh, with um, my friend uh, and your friend, Brian Stewart, the uh, foreign correspondent, war correspondent. I always used to call him the former this and the former that. But really, he's, he's still on the job, as we see every Tuesday. So, And, you know, before we go today, I wanted to actually mention... Um, when Brian and I were kind of starting out in the late 60s, early 70s, um, we used to look at some of the great names on the, the wall of foreign correspondents who were out there, both Canadian, you know, the Michael McClears um, of that day, and, and the Americans. And there were two American correspondents uh, who we all used to follow and admire. Uh, there were brothers, the Kalb brothers, uh, Bernie and Marvin. And they worked uh, together, first of all, in print, New York Times, I believe. Then it was to CBS, where they were uh, correspondents and eventually foreign correspondents and war correspondents at CBS. Then at NBC. Um, so they they were they were around. They went to a lot of places. They were top-level, A-class foreign correspondents. Uh, 
and you used to hang on on their words. Um, Marvin's 92 now, and not as active as he used to be, but still every once in a while you'll see uh, articles that he's written and thoughts that he has on the state of journalism. His older brother, Bernie, Bernard Kelp, passed away over the weekend. He's a hundred, a hundred years old. And, you know, I know that name is not, the neither name is perhaps familiar at all to today's generation of journalists. And it's too bad because looking at their careers, there's a lot to learn from them. Um, and Bernie Kalb, who was probably the lesser known of the two Kalb brothers, <laughs> this, this story about the Kalb's uh, mother, I guess this is back in the 70s or so, and she was looking for one of her sons. So she phoned the newsroom, I think it was at NBC, phoned the newsroom and said, um, I'm Marvin Kalb's mother. Could you tell me if Bernard Kalb is there today? <laughs> Which is the rub, right? Marvin was much better known. <laughs> so she identified herself as Marvin's mother uh, when she was actually looking for Bernie. Anyway, Bernie might have been the lesser known, but uh, his, his career was something else. And he especially uh, focused in on the travels of uh, of presidents and secretaries of state. Uh, he was on that, on that initial trip to China that Richard Nixon took that kind of opened the door to relations with China and Mao at the time. Um, he listened to this list of secretaries of state that Bernie Kalb uh, traveled with. Henry Kissinger, Cyrus Vance, Edmund Muskie, Alexander Haig, George Schultz. So he traveled the world with secretaries of state, saw some of the big issues face-to-face. He saw so much of all that that Bernie Calvert, in the latter years of his career as a foreign correspondent and one who covered foreign affairs, decided, you know what? I'm going to leave journalism. I'm going to actually go and join um, those who are making policy and explaining policy. And he was uh, the spokesman, I think, of the State Department for a year or so. And then he he just couldn't take it. He didn't like it on the other side. And he thought they were kind of, you know, glossing over stories, hiding the facts, creating their own facts. And so he left. But the Cal brothers, hugely important in terms of the coverage of our world. Um, half the team is is gone now with uh, Bernard Kalb's passing over the weekend at the age of 100, his brother Marvin, 92, and still occasionally active on the front of, uh, you know, talking about the media, talking about the way stories are done. And we're all better for it. And certainly my generation of, of journalists look back at those two with uh, um, enormous admiration. All right, that's it for this day. Uh, tomorrow, Brian Stewart 
other correspondent, who we have every reason to admire, uh, will be with us again, as he has been since, well, almost since the beginning of this war between Russia and Ukraine. Uh, That's it for this day. I'm Peter Mansbridge. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you again in 24 hours. Thank you.